1: Clay Johnson's mission is to redesign our healthcare system so doctors and their team truly get to know people in their care. The goal is to achieve better health outcomes for people by being more responsive to their needs, which ultimately will reduce wasteful healthcare spending. This new harmonious vision of health empowers people to know all their care options and costs, creating a partnership with medical providers that remains intact all along a person's health journey. Prior to Harbor Health, Dr. Johnson was the inaugural dean of the University of Texas at Austin's Dell Medical School. There, he served as professor of neurology and previously as an adjunct professor of neurology at the University of California at San Francisco. Clay, welcome to the Austin Next Podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. You were founding dean at the Dell Med School at UT. What's the origin story of that? It's got to be fascinating.
0: Yeah, well, the, or, the origin story, of course, started well before me, right? So it goes back to the nineteen fifties. Austin wanted to have a med school back in the nineteen fifties. Yeah, Frank Dinius. Do you know Frank Dinius at all? Anyway, a famous old Austin person had been part of a of a play to try to get the medical school here, and it kept sort of losing out. So whether it was you know uh, San Antonio or some other city. It actually, if you really want the origin story, it actually goes back to the 1800s. Bottom line was there was, you know, they were creating a university and having to cite it. And they had a health campus, medical school, and they decided not to put them all in one spot. Austin won for the university. And the biggest city at the time was Galveston. So UT Medical Branch was placed there. And so that set in motion too this whole separation between, you know, undergraduate campuses and the health campuses that exists even till today. And so we had to break that mold by bringing a health campus in under the university umbrella. So that's probably farther back than you guys wanted to go.
1: It's even before my time. What can I say?
0: Yeah, yeah. But for me, it was really the vote. You know, Kirk Watson helped to make this happen. It was the the vote to increase property tax to fund the med school, because the university could provide some of that support, but not enough to make it viable. No community had voted to increase their property tax to our med school. Pretty remarkable. And then that set everything in motion. And then they found me, you know, they interviewed a whole mess of people. I mean, I can't remember how many people applied and how many people interviewed, but it was tens of people were here to interview, and I'm sure over hundred people applaud. And I came in knowing that I didn't believe in the healthcare system and knowing that there was an opportunity here if they were interested in really taking the health system in a different direction, more in line with what their the sort of community-based vision was for how the med school would fit into Austin. And so I figured, you know, look, I'm really happy in my job. I don't need a new job. I'm not looking for fame or anything. So if I'm going to just tell them the way I think it should be, if they're not interested, totally understand. It's a little crazy. If they are, then I'll do it. And so they were interested. And so over, you know, then a series of conversations sort of laid out what I wanted to do. And then, yeah. So, so expand on that.
1: What was the vision when you first got here in terms of what Dell med could be?
0: Yeah. So you know, I, I don't want to spend too long talking about all this, but let me let me just tell you. So the for me, academic medicine was it does great things in every community in which it it exists. And so the, the, the people got that. you know, we want an innovation center. We want a training center to bring new doctors into our community. We want to integrate with other businesses, you know, and potentially create an opportunity for partnership with other businesses. And then from the university side, we want to stimulate research that also embraces health. So people got all that stuff. And med all med schools can do that, support all those things. You can just expect you build one. It's, you know, to the, to the right level, you're going to get all those things. The problem is fundamentally the way med schools are built. They're built on academic medical centers. They're providing care, right? They provide care in a lot of different specialty areas. They need to because they train in all these different specialty areas. And you want that in your community, tertiary care, you know, the more complex care to go to places where people are training and you have more specialists. Great. But the problem is there are two issues. One is that's not actually where health happens. Health really happens not in clinics and hospitals at all. Med schools don't address prevention, community health issues in general. And the other is when it does happen, it's usually primary care. Primary care has a really critical role, and med schools don't generally do that or do it very well. So that's one problem. They're wrongly focused on illness, on extreme illness. The second problem is their financial model. So the financial model in med schools is to, and part of the reason it focuses on the specialty stuff is they, they're in fee-for-service. That's where they make money is in the specialty care. And they need to make money on the care that they provide because they lose money in education and research. There's no way to make education and research be balanced efforts. They're always subsidized by clinical, always. Every single med school does that. So they're then driven to increase price into profit on illness in a community. So that's not what you want, right? Actually, that's not aligned with society's interest. If you really design with society's interest, you'd say, okay, I'm responsible for the health of this community. I know there are gaps and some will be in tertiary care and you know complex care, but most of those gaps are gonna be in community health and meeting those goals. And I should be aligned in reducing the costs for the community, not increasing the global net costs for the community. And then I have to figure out how to balance my books on that economic model. So that's fundamentally what we were trying to do. So that translates to how do you build each specialty? How do you create the components that then, cause we're still gonna be focused on specialty care, right? So what we did there is we took specific conditions and we said, okay, these conditions are really designed to maximize fee for service revenue, and that's a, a reality, right? If you start to depend on revenues coming from clinical care, and again, everybody does, all the players are depending on revenues coming from clinical care, then you figure out how you maximize your fee for service revenue because fee for service is the is the name of the game. So we said, okay, let's let's ignore fee for service. Let's design care around treating people, so knee pain, back pain, uh, bipolar disorder, and just say, what's the ideal system of care? Go back to basic principles, human-centered design approaches. What's the right way to provide this care? Who are the people? How do you use technologies? When do you need a doctor? What are the right meds? When do you need the therapies, you know, the surgeries and all that? And see if we can create better outcomes and lower costs at the same time. And the answer was it was easy. It was super easy to do that work. You know, in retrospect, it's not too surprising because so much of what's done is to maximize fee for service revenue. Doesn't it's not thinking about the person and their experience. And it's tending to bias towards the more expensive solutions, like doing more surgeries even when they're not necessary, or doing them too early when somebody's actually not prepared and could have a better outcome with the surgery. And so you take away all those biases and rebuild it, and you can do a hell of a lot better. And so that was our realization, is, and that's what I was trying to do for the med school. Okay. We could spend the an entire episode just talking about the
1: business model behind medical schools. That's clearly one of the issues that you were facing. But in trying to create this new medical school and this new model, as you described it, on the one hand, you've got the hospital and the treatment side, but you guys also wanted to build an innovation center. And how did the two work together, or what were the issues in getting the two to work together?
0: So you know, the a traditional innovation center is looking at the traditional approaches for introducing new products into the marketplace, right? So traditional innovation centers att- attached to medical schools are looking at mostly new drugs and devices Maybe new diagnostics and their ability to translate those into products that drop into our healthcare system—that's all great. UT has a lot of great foundation to do that, and we supported that. And I think we did some good things in those more traditional areas. Beating out the existing major players is extremely difficult. We can talk more about about that, but just you know, there's a center of gravity and. And South San Francisco, center of gravity in San Diego, and you know Cambridge and in the Boston area, it's extremely difficult to build around that. We already have, to some extent, a lot of that was you know some of that was in place before I got here. You know, there were already companies that were doing cool stuff before in that space, but getting to really compete with them takes longer and. I still feel fine about our progress in that space. But then there's a whole nother space, and that's in digital health, health systems, health technologies. And there, there is no home for that. I mean, you could say it's the Bay Area. it's partially true, you know, because of there's so much venture capital in the Bay Area, a lot of those companies end up there. But the reality is those health systems aren't particularly friendly or necessarily the innovator spaces for those things. So that was an area that I felt, and now you know, developing into AI and all of that, that Austin was really primed for. That includes new ways of delivering services. And of course we were testing that, right? So we were testing that at the point of care, new ways of designing care. And, design. and so the technologies needed to fit into that better. And if you look at our landscape, we do have a bunch of companies that are in that space that I just described. I think we've actually made more progress in that, and it makes sense. you know we come from a foundation of software and hardware as well. So we've got you know that piece of it too. So I think that's where we have the opportunity to actually be a major center, I won't I won't necessarily say the, the major center, but a major center for
2: that. I'll go as far as say the major center. I think that the conversion space that we have this opportunity in, and I agree with you, we don't want to be Boston. We don't want to be San Francisco or San Diego and trying to be what they are is a fool's errand, right? Like trying to be the next X is always being second class. And I think that when we think about one, being able to pull in the things from what Houston is also doing and what San Antonio and being able to kind of bring that together, but I want to pull the thread that you just said, which is when you move beyond the pure play product innovation, I've got a new drug, I've got a better surgical device, I've got a new diagnostic, and moving into these digital health, a lot of them do require business model change, delivery change, UX change. And we talked a little bit about that when you said you were going to care, but one of the bigger parts in that change is actually behavior change both of the physicians and nurses and clinicians, depending on whether it's more facing them or the patients themselves. How did you approach that conundrum?
0: Yeah, those are, that's a great question. So it's, well, it's behavior change. I'd I'd say there's a, behavior change is a fundamental problem. Like why are behaviors, why do they exist the way they exist? Healthcare is stodgy too. Like docs are incredibly independent and just sort of not necessarily in their politics but in their behavior many kind of almost libertarian in the way they think about don't tell me what to do i know the right thing i've i've always done it this way i want to continue not all docs are like that but that culture is important so getting that change at the practice point can be difficult changing consumer behavior actually is is not that easy either, of course, around social determinants of health and the background lifestyle issues and other things that are really the predictors of health. There's, and there's a lot of literature that shows just how hard that is. We all know that already, right? But, you know, losing weight, you know, it's extremely difficult, uh, you know, training for something new, you know, it's extremely difficult. So, So we get that part. I would say though, more fundamentally, the problem is the economics also don't support the changes that are logical. So if you are healthier, yes, you benefit from feeling healthier, but you don't necessarily benefit financially from being healthier. If you make better decisions in the health system, you don't necessarily benefit from making better decisions. So we've isolated that. So wearing that Fitbit, you don't get any reduction on your insurance payments. I mean, just just to make it concrete. And then on the clinician side, a lot of the products in the health system side, a lot of the products that have been developed have been developed by smart engineers who are coming from a consumer perspective. Look at this cool thing. I can measure blood pressure from your wrist. I can, you know, I can monitor people in their homes and provide millions of data points into the health system on their heart rhythm. And the reality is there's no place for them in the health system. Who wants a million data points on heart rhythm?
2: I'd rather have two insights than than a million data points.
0: Right. And even those insights, who's paying for them and why? And in a fee-for-service system, all you've done is load additional work on someone who has a fixed payment associated with an encounter that's already way too short, right? So fundamentally, this was a realization that became even clearer to me over time, that Part of the reason these kinds of innovations were failing, one was a disconnect between the people who were developing them from a consumer perspective and the actual health system, which is much more complicated and irrational in terms of what it's willing to support. You know, and there are customers within the health system that might be interested in a, in a million data points or two insights that come from, from measuring heart rhythm, but the majority will not be interested. But you know, navigating that, there's this huge disconnect between that. By the way, that's a great opportunity for innovation centers, bringing those two groups together. So, you got smart engineers, they're not really thinking about the health system, they don't really understand it. You got all these health system people, they have ideas for products and things that should happen, bringing those two together. So, we really focused on that area, and more cool things happened in that space from Delmed over time. But fundamentally, those things are going to fail unless there's the system itself is logical and says that things that work directly with consumers and have the potential to improve their health are valuable and valued and we will pay for them right until you get that those products won't succeed or you know if they do it'll be through this roundabout getting cms to reimburse as a code for that you know which is not the way they're justified and
2: existing. Well, I think a great example of that is you paratherapeutics, right? Which has an amazing, you know, depression digital therapeutic that is I maybe out of date on that. they look like they're about to go under because they're unable to get reimbursement. So you have an amazing product that doesn't have the path of reimbursement, CMS isn't doing and like something's broken in this situation, right? Like we have this thing, but it can't get paid for in the system. And that's the ball game even if it could be transformational, right, and save work and all that. If they
0: had figured out a way for it to allow a clinician to bill more for an for the visit, like, uh, you know, an MRI scan does, right, then boom, it would have been on fire. But you're right, then CMS has to agree and all that, and then, of course, there are additional regulations. Fundamentally, that doesn't make sense, right? So fundamentally, if there is a group that's taking responsibility for the health of a group of folks. So there's some entity taking real responsibility for the health of people. And it says, my job is to keep them as healthy as possible. Depression's an important issue. Being able to appropriately diagnose and then treat depression early will make that population healthier, happier, and actually reduce costs in managing them. If somebody with that perspective thinks that product could work or would test that product, boom, it has a market. And that's the logical market and the logical way to assess whether that should be introduced. Which, by the way, that sort of approach to thinking doesn't really happen, you know, to, to managing in the health system doesn't really happen today. The normal route for sales isn't to an entity that's taking responsibility. You know, an entity like Kaiser, Intermountain West, Geisinger, they, those entities do exist. They're big, they have hospitals, they're stodgy they make these decisions very, very slowly. They're not innovation centers. The key is to make innovation valuable also to the entities that are embracing it, just like for cell phones, for Apple watches, all that. That does not exist currently in the health system. I don't know if that makes sense to you, what I just said, but that's like a fundamental broken part of the ecosystem.
1: It does make sense. And you're Your discussion about having a group responsible for health of a group of lives, group of people, is interesting. Many, many moons ago, I did some consulting for a large healthcare company in the West that before it got bought by a larger healthcare company, and the first thing that the president of the company said to the four of us who were coming in to help is, you have to understand we're a capitated HMO, everybody hates us. And he went through why regulators hated them and consumers and doctors and everybody did. And the American healthcare system in general has often been described as amazing people with a crappy payment system. And how would you rank the players in terms of responsibility for the crappy payment system?
0: Oh yeah. Interesting. Well, the insurers follow the lead of CMS. So I think it it and you know the whole fee for service system was really built on Medicare's backs. So I think it government is, you know, ultimately the biggest, and they're the the biggest single payer in the system as well. That being said, we don't generally expect government to be at the forefront of innovation. I'd say the CMS's innovations towards value, you know, by value I mean paying, you know, it's quality over cost. So assessing health outcomes, interventions based on do they approve, do they improve outcomes? And then is it worth the cost? That value equation, they've pushed that far more than any entity in the private sector, at least amongst the large carriers. And that's great. And they will continue. And that's happened whether it's under a red regime or a blue regime. It's just this Pragmatic, logical approach, names change, emphasis on equity changes, but that's gonna continue. The fundamental arc stays the same. Right, in the private sector, the reality is the carriers are doing great. They're doing extremely well. Why would they try to innovate against their existing successful business model? And this would require a change in their existing business model. And then underneath that, what about the providers? Why aren't providers pushing to do this more? For the providers, generally they're doing fine. There are groups of providers that are doing poorly. There are groups that are doing well. Primary care is doing poorly. Cognitive specialists are doing poorly. Procedural oriented specialists are doing quite well in the system. Why do they wanna disrupt an existing system? So the, the question is, who and why, you know, who's going to do it, who's in pain right now, are they enough to create the pressure to make the change? I would say the, and now this is revealing some of our kind of fundamental strategy, but I think it's fine because I think everybody should be aware of this. So, you know, one group are the large employers. Individuals know the health system is not meeting their needs, but they're not empowered or wise enough. They don't have the agency and depth of knowledge required to make the changes. We don't give them opportunities to do that on the individual marketplace. Most of them aren't participating in it. And so there's not really opportunity for individuals to drive change. Their interests are aggregated best by employers. I mean, to some extent by CMS, but as we said, it's going to move slowly but employers are aggregating those interests. The large employers are seeing that this is cutting into their margins. It's the usually the number two cost center for their employees. They're smart business people. They want their employees to be healthy. So they have that alignment with the individuals, which I love and happy. They want it to be convenient and they wanna be able to have more of those dollars, not just to increase the salaries of executives or payouts and dividends but the salaries for their employees right so we're f- foregoing raises to some extent because we're paying them out in health premiums they're not seeing any additional benefits that are it would exceed inflation even though they've been paying that for decades and so they're screaming that this system stinks and they can look at specific examples too of where of just how broken it is as a business and so they become potential disruptors, right? So going to them and saying, can we together disrupt around the incumbents that really want to just see things happen? The other are the docs who were on the front lines. So the reality is in the, you could look at the literature, docs are, are horribly burnt out and COVID made that worse. It was happening before. COVID being gone hasn't cured it. And the docs that are most burnt out are primary care, the most important I would argue docs in our entire system. And they're being asked to see more and more patients. That's the opposite of what they signed up to do. They signed up to take care of people and make them healthy there for it to work in fee for service because the amount that they get paid is so small. The only way to cover your overhead costs and their salaries is to shrink those office visits, then they become basically worthless. Some of those don't even need to be office visits. They could be a phone call or a text message. There's no opportunity to do that. They're really not happy. That needs to change. So to me, those are the big players. And that creates an opportunity for us to, you know, to really get around a system that's incredibly large, incredibly expensive, with incumbents that are unbelievably powerful and through their consolidation have become even more powerful. All the the whole game is rigged to the large players. They get paid a hell of a lot more. They're so entrenched in their system, they've got all the brand, everything. Um so, you know, we need something that could disrupt that, push them to, you know, they're going to change. We want that that change. They need to have that stimulus for change. So, that's what we got to think about who's going to help that.
2: And so I think that's a perfect segue into talk to us about what is Harbor Health and how is that different?
0: Yeah. So I've, I've kind of laid the foundation and thinking behind Harbor Health. So uh, you know, I, uh, back to the med school stuff, I'm thrilled with what we were able to achieve at the med school, but we couldn't change the economics of healthcare from the provider side of it, from a public institution that can't take too much risk, that must focus on training. And we couldn't, be an insurer we can't take the dollars at the top that's the key get those dollars at the top and then use that to design a better system underneath reallocate and think better about how to design that system underneath so whereas we had in the med school all these successes in showing we could make outcomes better for various conditions and lower cost we weren't getting the patients in for those and we weren't getting paid differently for it and so we were losing money on those programs they weren't optimized for fee-for-service and we were the ones who stomached that the insurers didn't share any of the savings or pay us differently for achieving better outcomes for their folks so that's why it couldn't work in the med school the economics have to shift and so yeah what's harvard well harbors really Trying to get that dollar at the very top, that in closest to the insurance dollars you possibly can, and then use that to make much better decisions about how we manage groups of people and keep them as healthy as possible. And when they're not healthy, get them back to wellness, acknowledging that it's their dollars that are contributing to those care decisions and getting them to the right place too, to start to find better solutions that are, you know, the same price or better solutions that are actually cheaper. And often the better solutions are less expensive. So that's really what Harbor's doing. So that's conceptually. And then do you, you probably want, well, what
2: are you really, you know, where are you, where are you on the ground? So when I read the the statesman article about your launch, you know, the quote here was Harbor Health is working with insurance companies to get them to pay Harbor what they typically pay for care for each person per a year. And so when I kind of read it and hear, it sounds to me like a capitated HMO. And so trying to figure out like, yeah, this is a model we've done before, right? And so. It is and it
0: isn't, right? But that's a great question. That's exactly right. It is for structurally, it is similar to that. And, you know, some of those HMOs are also the insurer. Kaiser is a good example, right? And that gives them even more power to move things around and to make decisions. HMOs from their very conception have been narrow network solutions. They have said, you get your care at Kaiser. Fundamentally that goes against what we like as consumers, right? People are willing to accept that because Kaiser is better coordinated, their outcomes are better and they're less expensive. So they, you know, people are willing to make that sacrifice, but there's a, you know, what is that sacrifice worth? Well, to some people, it's worth so much that they're not going to make it. They want full choice. And for some people, it's it's they're not worried about it because they know the system's dysfunctional anyway. And for some people it you know, it averages out to like a twenty percent reduction, usually when you look at narrow network offerings versus broad PPO type offerings, you know, where you can go anywhere. So it but it also sends the wrong signal. It says that we don't care about your choice. It says that, maybe quality is better out there, we're not gonna acknowledge that, right? And it sa- sets this defensive posture for all the HMOs that to say, I have to prove that I'm just as good and that I'm not about you know, squeezing dimes out of use to put them in my pocket, right? Those are the problems with that system. So we don't wanna be closed. We shouldn't be closed. We should let people make decisions. People should understand the financial impact of the decisions they're making. We should give them all the data they need and create the structures so that there's always an option that allows them to do the right thing for free or as close to free as possible. And then if they decide, no, I wanna go over here and get my MRI scan at the hospital next door, okay, they're free to do that. If they have strong beliefs that that's the best place to get it, go ahead. But recognize that there's probably not a quality difference there, and there's certainly a cost difference. And so they would then be responsible for that cost differential. So that's the underlying financial structure that we're moving towards. And then the other is, what is good? How do you track good? How do you make that clear to people? How are we paid for good? you know, for making people healthier, not just paid and say, you take care of everything, because that always creates problems around, are you really about saving money or are you about my health? The beauty is that if people are healthier, they're cheaper. (laughs) You know, the perfectly healthy person costs nothing. And so you have to hold on to them long enough to reap the benefits of investments that you make in their health here. And so that becomes a problem for us as holding people for a long period of time. That's fine. You know, that that means the experience has to be good. They have to know that they can trust us. So it makes you, forces you to
2: build the relationships differently. That that was always the statin argument. If I want, if having somebody on statins, you needed to keep them for five, six, seven years to actually see the reduction in heart attacks. Otherwise, if I have giving somebody statins for two years and they switch insurance carriers, I didn't actually see that reduction uh, to my bottom line. That's exactly right.
0: I mean, the other one would be colon cancer screening, right? So colonoscopy is pretty expensive. You know, I'd rather if I'm an insurer and I only have you for one year, don't do it in my year. But that's not right for individuals. And so they don't, what we really should do is look at the entire population, say, have you had your colon cancer screening like you're supposed to? And if you haven't, reach out to them and make sure they get it and almost no one is doing that, right? And so so that's the kind of structure, you know, Harvard does that actually, that we have a system to find those people and to reach out to them and make, make sure they get a colonoscopy or some other test to make sure that that happens.
2: I've seen at the same time, right? The last, call it five to 10 years, in pre-COVID, we'll get, I think, to the kind of the telehealth boom that we've seen. We've also seen One Medical, Forward, Carbon, there's clearly this, this mode of like, okay, primary care has been kind of broken and lots of kind of these kind of startups have stepped in, whether they be, I'd say, very, very high end, almost concierge service, like on the forward side to kind of we're everywhere on like kind of the one medical side. One, what do you observe kind of as that trend saying? And at the same time, how do you feel like Harbor fits into that cornucopia?
0: Those are generally fee-for-service or subscription-based or some combo, right? Usually there's some combo because they're providing some source, uh, some services that aren't generally paid for in fee-for-service, but they're really fee-for-service shops. Most of their revenue is fee-for-service. I love those innovations. I think, you know, B, create the technologies, create the processes that make the experience better. You know, those are awesome. Keep going, please. For us... We believe too that that experience needs to change and the the whole system needs to change for the consumer. We need to be really sensitized to that. But for us, it's more about, you know, they're still office visit oriented and the whole system is built that way. Again, we don't even think beyond that, right? Oh, the doctor, I see that person in an office visit. Oh, maybe it's a telehealth visit, but it's sort of like the office. But it's that episodic, once a year or when I get sick, thing of being in front. That's too restrictive and that's not really what we need, right? What we really need is somebody who we know or a team of people we know. They're always there. They're thinking about our health. They're looking at whatever signals they have and they're willing to interact with us through whatever means makes sense. Sort of like our a parent. And if a phone call is a better way to address something, great. If a text message is the best way to address something, great. If an automated reminder is the best way to address something, great. Those three things I just mentioned are not reimbursed in the fee-for-service system, and so they don't happen. If you take that view that I just described where you've got, you don't care about the office visit, it's, it's sort of a, a panel view or a you know, population view, then it's a whole different kind of redesign. I want a long experience with you when we first get to know each other so that we know each other. I understand your health needs. I can go beyond any symptoms that you have today or any chronic issues you have to what your aspirations are for health. That's really important to all of us, right? That's not generally a part of the health system, but that also engages us in this broader conversation about how things are going, right? And then I become a contact for you if anything goes wrong. So don't go to the emergency room right away if you've got, you know, stomach ache or something. You know, call me. I'm right there. You know, I know you and you know that I trust, you can trust me and I can get you to where you need to go and I can help you navigate that system. So it creates a different whole structure for that relationship and the way we think about how that works. That's not happening with those entities. It is a little more in concierge care where you're starting to to see more of that happen. And some of the services that One Medical offers are starting to layer on a little on top of that as well. And so you're starting to see that. But what if you just blew that up, you know? And so that's kind of what we're doing in in Harbor is saying, no, we care about you. We don't need you to be in front of us unless you need to be in front of us. And we can help you decide. And we can decide that together. If you like to come in, fine, you know, we're happy. And we're going to take responsibility for things that wouldn't necessarily come up in an office visitor that aren't normally part of that encounter.
2: Well, and it's interesting because I think you are starting to see that in the, and it's becoming this really fuzzy line of what we'll kind of typically call, now call consumer health, right? If you think of like the founs and the nooms and like the, the weight loss or the uh, addiction, you know, that kind of space, which is, they actually don't start, there is no office visit, right? Now, some are bringing on coaches and the like, and they start with the, how do we engage? Because it gets back to our earlier point of, it's all about behavior change, right? How do we drive behavior change? And at the same time, which is interesting, as we've seen with the Amazon acquisition of One Medical, it's becoming a lot more in the sense of what you're saying, because now, of course, they have like PillPack and they have One Medical. It's becoming now the physical dimension of their whole range of services. and. What's interesting is when we get back to that kind of disruption point that you were making and who who is disrupting it. I find it interesting, you know, I worked at Beck and Dickinson a number of years ago and there was this run that we were we kept saying this was like 2013 to 2018 and we kept saying we need to become a tech company before the tech companies become healthcare companies. And we were talking about Google, Apple, you know, Microsoft and all these kind of cases. And in many cases and I specifically didn't mention Amazon. So I'm going to put them aside there because when I see that come, it didn't happen, right? Apple is kind of staying much in its lane, right? Like it's the Apple Watch, you know, and the heart rate monitor. It's, it's still very much what it is. And someone can correct me. I still don't fully understand what Verily is doing, right? And kind of everything, you know, what's changing in many ways. And then Microsoft is doing what Microsoft does best, right? Being that infrastructure, you know, and cloud and those kinds of things. But what Amazon is doing is less looking like Apple and Google and uh, Microsoft. No, it's looking like CVS, Walmart and Walgreens who are going hard into this space and spending, you know, buying Signify. Oh, I mean, the biggest other person trying to buy uh, one medical was CVS. And so you see that disruption occurring in the primary care slash consumer, I don't know where that line is starting to be drawn. Definitely. That's, I think you're
0: identifying really important trends that I think ultimately will converge on a better system. You know, Part of what we're doing too is pushing to consumer enablement. And we're saying, again, most of the play that Amazon is in is peripheral to the core spend in healthcare. It's really the insurance dollar where, you know, a lot of that money is changing hands. And, you know, underneath that, of course, is what's happening in hospitals and in clinics. Most of that actually is not in primary care, by the way. It's mostly in the specialty care and the hospitalizations
2: and stuff. We we all argue in these cases about drug costs, and if you soon as you see the chart, it's hospitalizations take up such a a huge part of 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 healthcare spend.
0: That's right, yeah. And won't even get into the drug stuff because it's so complicated. But the those guys are saying are really playing out in this space where where primary care meets consumer health, and they're asking people to reach into their pocket and pay more for consumer convenience. Like that's what One Medical does and they're starting to offer sort of discounts for people who pay out of pocket, that kind of thing, that's a perfect place for them to play, right? They understand consumers. They really are about service, right? And they do that extremely well. The challenge is how that reaches into this full health system. So what we're doing is we're reaching into a full health system. We're trying to change that full health system. But part of our play is, as consumer, advancement, you know, making the consumer an, an educated, engaged consumer with agency to make a variety of different choices in that system. And then part of what we're doing is enabling some of the specific, you know, you talk about Noom and all those others. If they work, we should cover them if we're taking the dollars at the top, right? So we should be assessing those and then testing them formally and embracing them and paying for them ourselves out of insurance dollars if they work. And so we become a platform too for those kinds of innovations. Now that's for Amazon. Amazon's perspective isn't, isn't to do that right now. It might develop them and sort of test them on its own on a, on a consumer basis. The interesting thing is this other consolidations that's happening from the carrier side. And you mentioned CVS was the other potential buyer of primary care. And United Healthcare actually owns a lot of docs. They bought a lot of, you know, WellMed's a good example, but they've got a lot of practices. How that plays out, I don't know. You know, the the PBMs and the pharmacies come together. It's not as though the margins of either go down. The margins of both went up okay, so what the hell happened to the efficiency of combining a PBM with a pharmacy? That doesn't make any sense. And, you know, you could say, well, maybe that's gonna be ultimately our fate. We're gonna combine all these things, we got dollars at the top, will ultimately increase cost. But no, we're purposefully pushing ourselves to create a marketplace for consumers and businesses that force prices down and direct towards better quality. That's what's kind of missing fundamentally in the ecosystem. That's fundamentally what we're trying to shift, not by control, that you combine a PBM and a pharmacy and you say, well, we'll give you better costs at our pharmacy. You control and direct. So you keep that. We're doing the opposite. We're opening up, creating the information that's required to say, how do you get to the best thing?
2: Because I think. When we're seeing this, and I think the consumer health is a growing piece, right? Because we always talk about, like, we have sick care and we want health care and we want to be able to kind of drive into this kind of prevention and how do you drive that behavior change? And a lot of it is incentives and also creating feedback loops. I mean, and making also things easier, right? The fact that the we actually have obesity drugs suddenly that work is a huge game changer. Like, hey, exercise, eat well, or take a pill once a day that does make it slightly easier to get uh, get adherence and, and get those. And I do think it'll be interesting to see how we start getting into the, I'll call it whole health business models. I do think a lot of these, the nooms, the founds, the, these type of companies are great. The problem I see that ends up happening with a lot of these, which I found was interesting when you, kind of, you said what you guys are setting in and this ability to kind of see all of them, is are we going to run into kind of like the streaming wars problem, which is like, oh, well, I'm going to have 15 different health subscriptions. Like that just ends up being too much, right? That's a great question. Well, even like who's purchasing
0: those, sometimes it's individuals and they can decide on a plan or not, right? But sometimes, and then you're right, am I still getting at all the stuff with streaming? Sometimes it's the uh, employer, Right. So a lot of these are sold to employers as well. And the employers are saying exactly what you said. Like, this is driving me crazy. I don't know if this thing works. I want to offer good things to my folks. I'm just an HR person who's learning about healthcare. How do I assess whether this works? Am I getting the value out of it? And I've got, you know, hundreds of these people approaching me for sales. You know, that becomes an issue.
2: Yeah. So I think the, there's a lot of interesting things as we go. And I think kind of bringing it back as we think about we're here in Austin. Why in Austin, right?
0: Well, first of all, yeah, why in Austin? One is Austin's a progressive place uh, that's growing incredibly rapidly and has, you know, good healthcare for sure and lot in options for folks. And, you know, how can we enhance those options and create you know, something new and different for this community, a community that embraces new things, likes to test new things and um, is open-minded. So that's one. Two is the Dell Medical School is here. Now, you know, we don't have yet any kind of official formal partnership with them. I'm no longer a faculty member. I'm not part of it anymore. But they built a whole bunch of really cool and powerful solutions for health conditions. That gives us a huge leg up if we can tap into those. Those are available to everyone. So, you know, we can pay them differently too to make it worth their while to keep innovating. That's a huge benefit. The other is I know the business leaders in town.
2: (laughs) Network spanner. Yeah.
0: And, you know, some of them encouraged me to do this. And so um, that opens doors and creates opportunities for us And then I know the provider community really well. And so people know the way I think, what I'm working on. Some are excited about that. I know, you know, where the bodies lie. And so it's, uh, that's really helpful too.
1: I want to talk about Austin a little bit more. The community, as you mentioned, the medical school idea here goes back over a hundred years. You look at today, we seem to be, lacking a bit in terms of bio and health infrastructure when it comes to to new startup companies, clinical facilities, lab space, compared to other metros, maybe talent as
0: well. Are we starting to catch up? Are we falling behind still? Where are we? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think we're certainly growing. So if the goal is to, to grow and have a more vibrant across the board Ecosystem for you know, the more traditional stuff and the more and then newer stuff on the newer stuff in terms of health technologies, AI, all that stuff, we're doing great. I mean, we're just becoming more and more prominent in that area. In terms of the more traditional biotech stuff, we're growing. There's just no question. In in some of that growth, you can chase, trace back to, you've always been able to trace a number of it back to UT, but now with medical school involvement, I think that's accelerated. The question is, you know, if you look at it as a percentage of total. Yeah, I'm sure we we've got a bigger percentage of total than we did uh, 10 years ago. You know, before the Med School was here. What do we need to accelerate it further? A lot of of investment if we really wanted to do that. We don't have adequate laboratory space. We do have more venture capital here, so we do have the opportunity to capture more of that. We have people who want to live here. You know, the the traditionally the approach has been if you're, you know, big pharma, you go to northern New Jersey, if you're Biotech, you go to the you know Bay Area and you know you've got you know laboratory scientists and regulatory people and all that stuff. Now it's easier to get people to move out of those places in here. So I think that's less of a barrier, and that could provide for some additional acceleration. But yeah, we need a little more in terms of flexible laboratory space, that kind of thing for that end of the translational chain.
1: And that brings us to our signature question with everything that we've talked about what's next Austin?
0: Yeah. So I never really told you what Harbor is. So let me just say first, right now we have four clinics in Austin and we're taking capitation. We're taking that dollar, the insurance dollar, wherever we can. And we have you know agreements coming forward to, to do that. But we're also taking everybody's insurance right now so they can learn how our clinics work. They're completely redesigned. We have... One that's up in Round Rock, one in Central Austin, actually right uh, 38th and Lamar, so right close to where we're sitting right now. And then another one um, in Kyle. And then we have a mobile clinic, has two exam rooms, a lab, a bathroom. It's pretty awesome. And we move that out to where it's needed. So it's, it's spent Monday and Tuesday out in Taylor, um, at the school district out in Taylor. Today and, um, and tomorrow it's at the... Wayside school system and providing access to people who really need it and are ready to get a better system of care. So, how is this going to change over time? So, our plan is to grow. Our plan is to provide a real option for people in Austin that doesn't just look and feel different, isn't just about convenience, but really is embracing a new approach to the health system about empowering our members, we don't call them patients because no one wants to be a patient. And when they do get sick, getting them to the absolute best places they can go. And we should become more and more visible over time. I know we're growing rapidly, but we have plenty of capacity for folks who are ready to have a, a new kind of care.
1: That's great, thank you so
0: very much. Dr. Clay Johnston,
1: physician, professor, innovator, and now the founder of Harper Health. Thanks for coming on the Austin Next Podcast.
2: So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher. Leave us a review and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.